So this is part two of the episode. This episode picks off where the other one left off, where we will now be addressing the various consequences that comes with secessionism and how to look at restructuring in a new way as long as well as as well as the strategies we could use to fight this new war that we're faced with. So please enjoy. It points to a war of the government versus the people. A new cold war. You see, the wars of this particular age, as I said, it's a very unique age, are not really fought with hot weapons, it's not fought with guns, it's not fought with bombs or rifles or explosives or you know weapons of mass destruction. The real war front in this age is in the face of economics, it's in the face of cyber, the cyber warfare. We talk about cyber warfare, we talk about economic warfare, we talk about industrial warfare. The government's incompetence, seeming incompetence, not to create the advanced infrastructure that we need to function as a society, we should start viewing it not as an attempt or not as a part of their incompetence or corruption, but more of a deliberate attempt to keep people where they are. Let's look at it from the perspective of how we're looking at the North, for example. The North is the most underdeveloped region in the whole Nigeria. It's very, under, it's very underdeveloped, it doesn't have good schools, it doesn't have good infrastructure, it's lagging behind the rest of the country. And their leaders, though wealthy they may be, and very politically powerful because as far as we know in Nigeria, power, political power has always rested with the North, have not really done anything to change it. And we must ask ourselves, why? It's pretty simple. They do not want to change it because they want to keep the people reliant on them. They want these people to have the mentality that if the government does not bring change, then we cannot have change. They want the people to remain inept, incapable of asking questions, incapable of actually pushing for the change that they deserve. That's the strategy in the North. And they've just extended it to the whole country and we're not even aware of it. Chai! This is why I call this a cold war. It's a war of ideologies, it's a war on the mind. And as they say, the hardest battles are fought in the mind. They've been waging war against us all this while and we have no clue. And we must wake up and we must realize it. The government is not our friend. The government is not our ally. Ideally, the government should be. Ideally, we shouldn't have to turn to the private sector to solve the problems that the government cannot. It's more of, it's supposed to be a kind of collaboration between two of them. But now we must look at things with new eyes. We must look at these things with new perspectives. And for one, we must begin to realize that the private sector must rise up and serve as a kind of counterbalance to the government, which is the public sector. It must. We must just begin to realize the truth for what it is. Now, let's, let's scale back a little bit. Now, I did mention regime change. I also mentioned restructuring. I also mentioned secessionism, you know, people who want to split up from the country. Now, in the face of this new war that we are facing, this is a re another reason why I do not really support the people who are pushing for splitting from this country through violent methods. You know, they want to fight, they want to kill, they want to spill blood before, you know, to get what they want, to get their motives or whatever it may be. The reason I do not support them is pretty simple. This is no longer the age of hot weapons. It's no longer the war of that type of violence. If anything, that type of violence is more likely to stifle development than anything. Okay, let me give you an instance. Now, to begin with, War is always very destructive. The rest of the world is developing. It's not scaling back in any way. It's moving ahead. It's moving forward. What would happen now if we fell into war? Well, we'd fight among ourselves. Infrastructure would, de would, would be destroyed. People would be displaced from their homes. It would bring a halt to things like academics and school and work. In other words, 
it's really going to stifle development in any way that matters. Now, what then happens after we're done fighting? Well, after we're done fighting, then we would need to rebuild. And while we're rebuilding the mess from our chaos, the rest of the world is moving ahead. While we were fighting, the rest of the world was moving ahead. So while we were fighting, the world was progressing. And while we were rebuilding, the world was progressing. By the time we're done with all of that, by the time we're done cleaning up after ourselves, we'd be very surprised to find out that the world has gone so far ahead that there is no hope of catching up. And that's why I don't really view secessionism or, you know, fighting by violence, particularly this taking by force as the best solution so far. Now, the key thing about understanding why I believe that this groups that are trying to secede from Nigeria, like the Eastern Security Network and the ones in the West, I don't know what they're called in the West. The point is that we must understand that their motives are anything but righteous and good. And if anything, it's a recipe for disaster. Let me explain this. When Boko Haram first started in the North, it started as this kind of group that was against Western education. It seemed to portray itself as a savior of the people in the North, you know, liberating them from the shackles of the evil West and returning things back to how they did things, you know, their more conservative way of living and all of that. And a lot of Northerners supported them. A lot of Northerners were giving, you know, were sponsoring, were helping, were aiding and abetting Boko Haram in as many ways as they could. What is Boko Haram now? Well, it's completely spiraled out of control and it's become a pure terrorist group. Now it's slaughtering the very people who believed in its cause. It's slaughtering and killing the very people who believed in its vision. And all of a sudden, they're waking up to the reality like, okay, I think we fucked up. We probably should have seen this coming, but we didn't. It's the exact same thing that's happening now in the West and in the East. These groups now, for now, seem to be on our side. It's only a matter of time before they fall out of favor with either their sponsors or their motives change or whatever. But the point is, they will become terrorist groups in the South. And it's a very big problem because look at what's happened in the North. Look at people being kidnapped from schools. Already, we're seeing these people battle it out with the Nigerian army. And there are lots of civilian casualties. And they seem so callous about it. They don't care that there's civilian casualties. It's what, one thing I really realized is that they don't give a damn that the fact that there's civilian casualties. It's almost like it's everybody else and then it's them. That's just a terrorist group waiting to happen. And eventually, it will happen, unfortunately. It's not a reality we can escape. I mean, we should have learned from Niger Delta militant already. They came up initially saying they were fighting to protect the oil, you know, the oil and natural resources in the Niger Delta region. Well, what did it eventually become? Terrorizing villages, terrorizing people, the same people it said it was trying to protect. And then it became very money driven. The amnesty program kind of proved that those people were not fighting for any righteous cause. They were just out for themselves. Hunger drives people to do things like this. It happens a lot. There's nothing new about it. So we've seen this pattern repeat and repeat itself. And we're doing the same thing again with these groups in the East and in the West. People are supporting them now. You believe it's it's for your own benefit. It's for your own good. Let's see what happens with these groups in the next two, three years. And then we're going to know truly if their motives were pure and righteous. It always seems that that way it's never really the case. I rather prefer we look at things from an economic front. And that brings us to another thing, which is the case for restructuring. Now, we've always so far looked at restructuring as resource control, you know, an increased degree of control over our own resources is what we've always looked at restructuring to be. And I agree with that. But as I said, in the context of this new age in which we're living in, we must begin to ask ourselves what kind of resource matters the most. You see, the world transitioned from a resource-based economy to an industrialized economy. 
and then from an industrialized economy the world transitioned to a knowledge-based economy. And somehow, it seems that we haven't picked up on that. We fail to realize that the resource that matters the most in the 21st century is not mineral resource. It's human resource, it's skill, it's knowledge, it's innovation, it's technology. That is what matters the most. So if we are pushing for autonomy and control of our resources, in truth, the ball rests in our court. If you're trying to battle it out with the government to give you an, uh, a higher degree of autonomy over your things like oil and whatever natural resources, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. The government is never going to let it go. It's never going to let it go. Let's face that reality. We've been fighting for this thing for a long time. It didn't start today. The government is not going to let any of that go. And we have no leverage. We have no leverage. There is nothing we could do to put the government in a tight spot to say, well, it's either us or this. People try to do that with seceding, but the government is more willing to use brute force to bring them to heel than anything else. So we must begin to look at other types of resources. Rather than mineral resource, let's focus on our human resource. Let's focus on skill development. Let's focus on investing in education. Let's focus on building up infrastructure. Let's focus on improving technology. Because development starts small and then grows bigger as you look at it. Because the whole is made up of a sum of parts. That's just the reality of our situation. So instead of trying to battle it out with the government for resource, in quotes, control, let's begin to focus on the resource that actually matters to this country. Let's invest in education, as I've already said, a lot. We stand a lot more to benefit. Besides, oil is fading. If coronavirus wasn't any indication of that, where oil prices dropped to zero, then I don't know what is. Because at the end of the day, the world is making the switch to renewable energy. Now granted, battery technology and the technologies that should enhance renewable uh, energy is not yet sustainable, it's not yet to the level where it can compete with oil, but we know that eventually it will get there. We're aware that it will get there. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of when. So since the government isn't going to give us control of our resources anyway, why not make the switch to renewable energy? Why not begin to be a pioneer in that technology? Let me give you an instance. So, in the case of China and the US, China is a very rapidly developing nation. It's very advanced technologically and culturally. Now, they recently had this issue with the United States during the time of Donald Trump, where the United States was imposing trade barriers on them, you know, tariffs and all of that, you know, imposed a trade war on them, which further goes to re-emphasize my point that the wars of this century are more economically based, industrially based than anything else. Now, what happened with the Chinese was that they could have made the very stupid option of going against the United States in terms of military, uh, of military force, you know, to go and battle it out with the United States. But they were smarter than that. The Chinese took a step back and they said, well, we know that you have invested a lot more money into defense projects than we have. You're more powerful in terms of fighting wars than we are. You fought a lot of wars around the world, though you've lost a lot of those wars, but your troops are experienced in fighting battles. We don't have that experience. So what are we going to do? We cannot fight you in, in the defense industry, but we're going to take a step back and we're going to invest in industries like AI and robotics and nanotechnology and biotechnology. We're going to invest in all these new industries that are just emerging, quantum computing, quantum cryptography, quantum internet, that nobody can claim to be a master over. Nobody has the intellectual property or knowledge over all of these technologies yet. These are new and emerging industries. We're going to take a step back 
and we're going to gain control of those industries we're going to be better than you in those industries we're going to invest money and become the leaders in those industries and then we're going to see how you're going to challenge us that was literally the strategy of the chinese that is literally the strategy of the chinese and that's exactly what we need to do if you're pushing for restructuring that should be the restructuring the restructuring starts it, it all boils back down to us waiting for the government is just the excuse we give ourselves to be lazy the reason it's not working ah the government is bad it's horrible we are the problem let's scale back let's start looking for ways to solve our problems let's invest in education let's invest in infrastructure let's do this the private sector can push this the whole idea behind entrepreneurs is literally solving problems for profit imagine a, a scenario where a big company or a big industry comes into a rural area now because they come into that rural area what happens is that when they come into that rural area what happens is that they build up factories and when they build up factories well they need good roads they need those good roads not because they're philanthropic or uh, philanthropic or you know very charitable in nature it's simply because they're going to need a good source of transport to transport uh, goods in and out of their factories or their industries so it makes business sense to have good roads that they could use it also makes good business sense to have a stable power supply because their factories and industries are going to need to run on power do you get how this works already because of that development is entering this you know community as it should be so that's why i really believe that this is the century this is the age of the private sector and this is a time where more than ever before the government is feeling threatened it's trying to retain power as much as it can and so that's why you see it with over regulation of the private sector it claims that it's doing it in the people's best interest but if we're really to sit down and measure who has been more impactful to nigerians so far in recent decade there is nothing you could look at more than the private sector whether it be in terms of loans it's the private sector in terms of mobile banking it's the private sector in terms of who can invest when where and how they want to it's the private sector you know the private sector has been the facilitator of change not the government the government is just sitting there as a even if power improves in this country it's still going to be the role of the private sector to do it they're investing in solar panels a lot of people who have solar panels it's not a government scheme it's the private sector, it's private individuals, private corporations, businesses that are bringing in solar panels at cheaper and affordable rates for the everyday Nigerians to enjoy. The innovation that's happening is something the government should encourage and should regulate to make sure that the private sector uh, does not overstep the line. But unfortunately, the government is more interested in keeping things in its own pocket. And so therefore, as I, as I said, we must first realize that we are at war and in realizing that we are at war we must realize that we must develop strategies to fight that war the technologies of this age have already done half the work for us it's decentralizing power and that's development that will come whether the government likes it or not that's a bonus but we must also begin to take control strategically of crucial industries industries that the government has no control over i'm not talking about industries like the oil sector that's government dominated i'm not talking about industries like even telecommunication to an extent the government has too too deeply placed their hands into that let's look for industries as i said as the chinese did ai robotics nanotechnology let's look for applications that could be applied to our context and solve these issues and that's the best thing we could do for ourselves that's the quickest way to autonomy that's the quickest way to restructure and have resource control because when you have the power over the industries that matter 20 30 years from now then you could have power to leverage that against the government it could be a negotiating point then you could actually negotiate for 
increased control of the mineral resources that you so crave. That's the best way to get out of this. In my opinion, the most realistic one. A regime change is not as realistic. The government is against the people. Anyways, that's pretty much it for this particular episode. I do apologize for the background noise. Where I'm recording is not exactly ideal. So, I hope you learned enough from this episode. And do check out our Facebook page at Skeptic Podcast. And our Instagram, you could like and follow. And that's pretty much it for this episode. Thank you. See you next time.